There's something about a good rivalry, isn't there? It really makes things more exciting, and it keeps you engaged. And you can see this truth in the way that sporting events are marketed to us, right? There are games that you're going to want to watch, not necessarily rivalry games, and you'll sit down and you'll enjoy them. But then there are the rivalry games. You don't miss those. Those are the games that you make sure that you watch. Even if they don't feature teams that you like, you often find yourself watching them. There's just something more at stake when it's a rivalry. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be a big one. There's just something about when we see that the other teams have an inherent distaste for each other. I would rarely sit down and watch Michigan play. Same with Ohio State. But I like to watch them play each other. And having lived in Northwest Ohio for eight years, I know that the majority of my friends have plenty of Ohio State shirts, but almost every one of them has a shirt that says, Beat Michigan. And in fact, one year, Nebraska played Michigan in a bowl game, and I got a call from my friend Brent. He said, would you like to go to this restaurant? The guy's a Michigan owner. We'll watch Nebraska play Michigan there. Sure, I'd like to go, Brent. Uh, Bring as many Nebraska shirts as you have. And we met in the parking lot, and we walked in there together, decked out in Nebraska shirts, because they disliked Michigan that much. It was a good evening. But I can spell this out even more for you. I can boil it down so you can truly understand. Imagine this scenario. In the coming football season, the Vikings miss the playoffs. Their record is eight wins and nine losses, but two of those losses were to the Packers. Now, I'm guessing most of you Vikings fans, and I tested this on a few people as I was preparing this week, most of you Vikings fans, if you're not going to make the playoffs, you would trade an 8-9 and nine season for a 2-15 and 15 season if those two wins were against the Packers. I, the laughter says I ain't wrong. Sports is obviously the easy answer here, the easy example of this, but there are some other legendary rivalries that draw us in. From stories, we have the Hatfields and the McCoys, the Capulets and the Montagues, Tom and Jerry, and even Miyagi-Do versus Cobra Kai. But it isn't just sports and stories where the rivalries draw us in. It's also businesses and products. We feel we have to pick a side and stand up for our favorite. You have Coke versus Pepsi, McDonald's versus Burger King, Nike versus Under Armour, And who could forget the many years of commercials that started out, I'm a Mac and I'm a PC. Rivalries are embedded into our lives. And today as we come to the last half of the 25th chapter of Genesis, we find ourselves in a rivalry for the ages as we're introduced to the offspring of Isaac. And this is a really interesting transition in the story of redemption. Because we spent so much time in the story of Abraham, and what were we doing there? We were waiting for Isaac. With the child of the promise, will will that child of the promise ever come? Will Isaac ever arrive? It feels like it'll never happen. And then as the story of Abraham finishes up, we finally read about Isaac and Rebekah being brought together by the providence of God. And if you were reading the story of Isaac for the first time, you could easily think, 
that we're going to spend chapter after chapter on Isaac, just like we did with Abraham. But that's not the case. Instead, right away, we come into the offspring of Isaac, and we read about this rivalry, a sibling rivalry between Esau and Jacob. And if it was a movie, Isaac would be clamoring for more screen time here, wouldn't he? Because we hardly know anything of Isaac. The story so quickly goes to Esau and Jacob. And so we find ourselves in the end of chapter 25. And we're going to break it down into three points, like we normally do, to help us navigate this important development in the story of redemption. So our first point today is we're going to see that the promise is continuing. As we start digging into the next phase of the story of redemption, we might think that it's going to look like Abraham's story. What better way to continue showing God fulfilling his promise to his people than him continuing to provide the promised offspring even though the wife is barren? And we'll see that Rebecca was barren for a while, but that isn't the focus of the story like it was with Abraham. It seems as though it's such a short part of the story, it's almost like a footnote that Rebecca is barren. It takes 20 years of marriage for the children to be born, but that isn't the focus like it was with Abraham. Instead of dwelling on the infertility, suddenly there's twins, there's plenty of fertility. And so the tension in the story isn't that the, isn't will the child of the promise come, but instead the tension is who will the child of the promise be? Secondly, we're going to see that God chooses the older to serve the younger. And that really flips the script of how things work. The oldest is supposed to be the one who is the primary heir. But God chooses the one who is born second. Esau is supposed to be the heir. But God ordains that the promise will come through, he, through who he wills. And not according to the way men would do it. Finally, We see that the tension between these two brothers begins immediately. Esau doesn't seem to care about the inheritance and being the rightful heir of Isaac and the promise, but Jacob isn't so great either. He schemes to take the birthright from his brother, and again, there is tension in the story. Esau doesn't value the things of God, and Jacob is a scoundrel. What will God do? How can the children of the promise overcome the children of the serpent? How will God win? And so as the story begins, we find ourselves with some familiar language to give us this idea that a new story is being told. As we've moved through the genealogies of the other offspring of Abraham that we looked at last week, we've seen this phrase before so many times in the book of Genesis as we've been in it. These are the generations of. And that phrase transitions us through the story of redemption several times in the book, and we get reminders here. When we read about these genealogies, we see not only the reminder that this is an unfolding story, but we also give some new, are given some new information. But here, it's condensed. It's a significant portion of Isaac's life. Now remember what I said, Abraham, how often through the story were we reminded that Sarah was barren? And how many times did I say from right up here, it's not a comeback story, it's a resurrection story. I said it so many times. That was the focus. That was the focus. But here, with the offspring of Isaac, it's quick. It starts out telling us that Isaac didn't marry Rebekah until he was 40, 
And then we have some other stuff, and then suddenly we read that, well, Rebecca was barren. And we know that this union was ordained by God. God brought Rebecca into the life of Isaac by his sovereign hand. But we're reading here that patience was still necessary. Yes, the story is a little bit similar to the story of Abraham, but it's kind of a footnote. There aren't very many details given this time. It obviously wasn't important to the story, but we do see something that is so important. We see that Isaac is a man who fears God, and he trusts God to provide, because when Rebekah was barren, he prayed to God, and the Lord granted his prayer. Now, we're going to see later on in the telling of the story that that we'll get to in a moment, that this collection of sentences here that we've read actually encapsulates roughly 20 years of time. Now, as I said, we don't have much detail on the life of Isaac, but I want to take a moment to point out what we also don't see here. It's an important omission that we see. We don't have stories of Isaac pursuing having children with other women like we did with Abraham. He trusts that God has ordained Rebekah to be his wife, and he trusts that God is going to provide. That is an important thing. Isaac is one of the few times that we see monogamy from the pillars of the faith in Genesis. And you have to wonder if the disasters that he saw from his father refusing to trust God's promises regarding children caused him to pray instead of taking another wife or having concubines. Regardless, we see that Isaac has faith. He does not take matters into his own hands. And so the struggle that is going to come out of the story of Isaac is not how all the different family groups will end up uh, not being the people of God because Isaac didn't follow the promise of God. Instead, we have this story, that Rebekah was barren, but then she has twins, and that creates a problem in and of itself. Barrenness isn't a huge part of the story. Isaac isn't impatient and seeking out children through his own measures, but the tension in the story is going to come from a different place, and we're going to see it right away as we continue through the story and move on to our second point. There's not a child in Rebekah's womb. There are children, and we see that this is the cause for the tension in the story. The boys within her aren't even born yet, and the children are struggling within her. Imagine what this must have been doing to Rebecca. I think most of us have seen the effects that a rambunctious unborn can have on a mother. It's exhausting, right, ladies? I'm sure many of you mothers may have just exchanged a glance with a child sitting near you who was rambunctious when they were in you, right? It is unsettling. Imagine what must have been the thought of Rebecca. Remember, she would not have gone to have an ultrasound for her to know that she was pregnant with twins. She also wouldn't have had the nurses come in with a cool microphone to listen, and oh my goodness, we found two heartbeats. She doesn't know that there are two within her. The children are struggling within her, and she is unaware that there's the twins. Now, we don't know how she goes to inquire of the Lord, and we don't know how the Lord answers. 
But the message from the Lord that we read here is quite clear. She is informed that there are two nations in her womb. In other words, there will be two people groups with their own descendants who will branch off from their family tree. And this is not going to be a story of peace. These aren't going to be people who are going to rent a camp on a lake every summer for a big family reunion and the cousins get together for the first time in years and they reminisce about the good old days, catching up. Where are your kids? Where are your kids? Oh, that's so good to hear. Do you remember back when? That isn't the story that's happening here. Even though these children are coming from the same womb at the same time, they share the same lineage, there will not be peace between them. Now imagine hearing this if you're Rebecca. You know of the promise of God. You have heard the story of who your husband is and how long it took for him to be conceived. And it was a miraculous thing. And we can't peer into the mind of Rebecca, but you have to think that all of this tension was extremely unexpected. The answer to prayer that this conception was is a blessing. And I think they would have assumed, we have obeyed God. We haven't gone off and, and tried to have children another way. Things are going to be wonderful. It won't be like Abraham's family and all the tension between Ishmael and Isaac and all the other offspring of Abraham. There won't be tension here. But right away, before the kids are even born, she finds out there's going to be tension. This should be cut and dry. They've been faithful, but instead, right away, we have brothers And they're not only going to struggle with each other, they're struggling with each other before they're even born. And we learn something else about the young men within her that's going to cause a struggle. One is going to be stronger, but the older shall serve the younger. Now wait just a minute. That isn't the way it's supposed to work. The oldest child is the heir in their culture. The one who receives the blessing of the promise is the older child. So what's going on? How can this possibly be? Well, we're once again seeing that the choice of who is the one to carry the promise of the Messiah is not determined by earthly standards. It's not switched up by Abraham having Ishmael with Hagar. Ishmael was the the firstborn by earthly standards, not the standards of God, but the standards of men. Ishmael should have been the child of the promise. But God says, no, it's Isaac. Instead, God is the one who determines who the child of the promise is. It's God's divine election. He chooses. It isn't because of anything that child does, but it's solely because of God, and it's solely by his grace. And as the passage continues, we find that they were in fact twins born within her but they are not identical. They're fraternal twins, and the firstborn has very distinguishing features. He's red, he's hairy. You kind of feel bad for Esau being described the way it is here, don't you? Just kind of of feel bad for him. Um, But he isn't the only one who has something interesting about himself right away as he's born. It seems as though the struggle continued right up until they were actually born, because Esau comes out, and the second child is born grabbing the heel of the firstborn. He's already trying to take a hold of Esau. He's already trying to steal the blessings of the firstborn. He's trying to be born first. That's the idea with what happens when Jacob is born. He's trying to take what isn't rightfully his. And he's named Jacob, which means heel grabber. 
And the idea is, is that he is a deceiver. What a way to start out life. Your parents name you heel grabber or deceiver. Yeah. God not only lets your mother know how your families will relate to each other for generations upon generations, but one of you is seen as trying to take what is rightfully his brother's. And you can feel the tension as we read this, right? There, there's a persistent struggle between the children of the promise and the children of the serpent. And you would think it's not going to be an issue this time because we have twins. Same mother, same father, same DNA. But there's still a struggle. The struggle still remains. In fact, as you go through the Old Testament, you will see the struggle between the Israelites and the children of Esau, the Edomites, continues over and over. The tension that keeps coming through is that the child of the promise is going to be struggling against the serpent over and over. It started in the garden, and it continues through Adam and Eve's children, and it needs to be relieved. We need to get the Messiah. We need the Messiah to crush the head of the serpent. That's the idea. God is at work. We're seeing it. God is at work. We're not sure what's going to happen. That's the tension. But we can see God's hand. And so as we move on to our third point in the final section of our passage for today, we're going to see that the tension truly is amplified as we see the first story of Esau and Jacob here. We find out that the prophecy has come to pass. One of the twins is stronger. He's a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field. And the younger brother dwells in tents, and we find that his mother favors him. And Esau is loved by Jacob because he eats of his game. Now, there are so many interesting things in this short part of the story. The first thing we get to see is that Isaac loves Esau. Well, why is that? Well, it's because his belly is being filled. He, he likes getting something from him that satisfies his desires. And this is giving us a warning, and it's giving us a foretaste of the fact that Isaac isn't going to respect the prophetic word regarding the twins. Remember, Rebekah heard from God himself that the, young, the older would serve the younger. And we're seeing with this part of the story, Isaac favoring Esau. Isaac isn't going to bless Jacob like he's supposed to. And that's going to bring further tension on. He loves Esau. He prefers the things that Esau provides him. So, what is the likelihood that he will bless the son that God has chosen? And so we see that Isaac isn't following the things of God, but instead he's pursuing that which he desires. And we're going to see more about that later on. But we also see here that Rebekah favors Jacob. And we aren't told if this is because of the prophetic word regarding the boys or if it's because he hangs around the tents and does what his mother asks him to do. Regardless, we see the family dynamics in play here. And it isn't difficult to see the tension that it must have created. And right away, with no time wasted in the text, Moses doesn't waste any time showing us that there's going to be problems here, does he? Because we see the issues right away. Esau comes in from the field. Jacob has been making stew, and Esau is hungry and exhausted. And Jacob, being conniving, sees this as an opportunity to get what he really wants from his brother. 
He started life pulling at Esau's heel, and he's going to continue to pull at Esau's heel. He's going to try to get into Esau's position. That's where he wants to be. And this is a story that shows us these two men and their character. Because Esau is more concerned with the things of the flesh. He doesn't value the promise. He doesn't value his birthright. He doesn't seem to care at all. He just wants his belly filled. Now Jacob may know the prophecy his mother received regarding his being the child of the blessing. But his character isn't great here either, is it? He manipulates Esau instead of trusting that God's promise will come to him as he promised. And Esau falls for it. He's so hungry, he thinks he will die, so the idea of being the heir of the promise doesn't mean anything to him. He just wants his belly full. And as the passage closes out, we get a real negative impression of Esau. While it clearly wasn't a good thing that Jacob did, the bigger issue here is in the action of Esau. He despised his birthright. He despised the idea that he would be the child of the promise. He despised the idea of God's faithfulness. He sold out his rights as the firstborn for stew. Now, we know he was not going to receive the promise anyway, but it seems as though he doesn't know this piece of information. And so we see that Esau is willing to throw away the blessing of his father and the blessing of God for supper. For supper. And before we move on to the application of this passage for this week, I want to draw out the tension that this text is creating a little bit further. Because one of the things that we feel as we progress through the story of Jacob is going to be, boy, this is a tough story. I know Jacob is ultimately the winner, but who do I root for here? Who's, who's the good guy in the story ultimately here? Which rival am I going to buy the jersey for and get the giant foam finger? That says, am I going to get go, go Jacob or go Esau? That's the tension in the text. Naturally, we gravitate to Jacob, but at the same time, Jacob's a scoundrel. He's a scoundrel. And there's a sense in this story and in the upcoming story of the blessing that, they received, that he received from Isaac that you're going to feel sorry for Esau. He's going to beg for the blessing. You're going to feel sorry for him. And Jacob deceived Isaac to receive that blessing. And we're rarely going to see, as we go through the life of Jacob, we're going to see very rarely is Jacob a sympathetic character. And this is an awesome blessing. This is a fantastic blessing for us because it shows us that God's choice isn't because Jacob is the better person or because Jacob is more likable. God's choice is all of grace. It's all about his sovereign election of Jacob. And so I ask the question again, who should we be rooting for here? Esau doesn't care about the promise. Jacob is a scoundrel. Who should we be rooting for? And here's the correct answer. God and his promises. That's who we're rooting for in the story. Because even though it seems as though Esau and Jacob are the main characters in the story, they're not. God is the main character in this and every story. We should be seeking to root for God, to see how he is working history for his people, for you and I. In this great rivalry that we're seeing between Esau and Jacob, 
We're rooting for the God who is ordaining things to come to pass in such a way that by his divine choice, the child of the promise will come. The Messiah will come through the seed of the woman, through Jacob, and Jesus Christ will be born. And in his death, resurrection, and ascension, he will stomp on the head of the serpent once and for all. The tension in the story continues until Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, victorious over sin, death, and hell. That's what we're rooting for. That's the story. The story of Christ, life, death, resurrection, and ascension for you. And so what can we come away from this passage with today as we seek to go into God's world in the coming week and be his faithful servants? Well, the first application that I want us to see is found in the patience that we saw in the life of Isaac. It's a short part of the story. It's one sentence. But Isaac knew the promise of God was related to his offspring. It would have been very easy to wonder why it was taking so long to have a child, and he could have done what his father did and run off and tried to solve the problem on his own. But instead, Isaac trusted God. He didn't pursue another woman to bear him a child. Instead, in faith, he prayed and God blessed him. And we get one sentence that tells us how long this took. It was 20 years. 20 years. Imagine waiting that long for a promise you know is going to come to pass because you're a sign of the promise yourself. But he waited. He was faithful to God. He trusted in God's promise. I think that that is a patience and a perseverance that we would all like to have. And living a life of faith like Isaac had here starts today. It starts with us trusting God with the little things and allowing his word and the Holy Spirit to mold and shape us into the image of Christ. And so may we be like Isaac here and prayerfully trust God and live prayerfully believing that God works all things together for good for those who love him. May we prayerfully and patiently wait for the Lord, even if it takes 20 years or more. May we be patient and prayerful like Isaac. Secondly, part of this is trusting the sovereign plan of God. If you survey this story, it seems like a little bit of a disaster, right? What is, what is God doing here? It's easy, it was easy to see the discord caused by Abraham's sins and his failures, and then we could see God working it all together. But in the story here, Isaac is faithful, but there's still problems. Yet, we see that God is at work through all of it, and he's going to bring salvation to his people through it. Like I said just a few minutes ago, in the story of Esau and Jacob, we have two rivals that we aren't sure, sure who to root for. But the real main character in the story is God. And he is bringing his people to himself. That's what God does. That's what he does. And we're going to see that despite Jacob's moral failings, God still uses him because God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is the sovereign plan of God. And we can trust we can trust that sovereign plan of God and live in confidence each and every day that God is bringing us to himself. He has saved us by his grace. 
He is building us up through his word and spirit to become holy and to be conformed to the image of Christ. We can trust that plan because God is in control. We can live in confidence each and every day. You've been given the gift of faith by God himself, and his sovereign plan is at work in your life. In the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your failures, God chose you and still works in here, works in you, to bring you to himself by his mercy and grace. And so, in the face of your struggles and in the face of difficulties, you can know that just as God was working in the lives of his people here in Genesis, he is working in your life for his good and his glory that you might be conformed to the image of the Son. So find comfort in this peace as you live and love in God's world this coming week. Amen.